Welcome to the One Track Mind podcast. I'm your host, John Miller. And in this episode, I talk with automotive engineer and Continental Tire IMSA ST champion race car driver, David Telenius. We talk about how a kid from Alaska, yeah, Alaska, got exposed to racing and how he made a career in the automotive industry, developing suspension for road cars and teaching other engineers how to drive. David tells a great story about the political side of working for an OEM, and he also takes blame for the Pontiac Aztec. He tells us about a Saab version of the Aztec that thankfully never made it into production. We also talk about his experience developing the Pontiac Solstice at the Nürburgring and his more recent exploits racing at the Nürburgring and about the mindset that David applied to his own driving career in terms of how he funded his racing. He's got a pretty unique perspective. If you enjoy the show, subscribe, tell your friends, share it, and follow us on Instagram at One Track Mind Show. Enjoy the episode. Is this gonna uh, that chair gonna that might in? be a little too far? Yeah. No, the creaking to, chair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather me switch you for a non-movable chair? No, no, no. It's good. Just as long as I know, and then I will attempt yeah. to speak over the creaking (laughs) (laughs) all right so david telenius aston martin test center driver at the nurburgring uh ride and handling engineer what else should i say about you what what how could i introduce you why don't we why don't you introduce yourself who is david telenius and how did he get here in uh, the automotive motorsports career that he's got Uh, easy easy um i was growing up in southeastern alaska Nobody in my family involved in motorsports or automotive in any way. Um, was watching TV in the middle of summer. It rains 200 inches a year in Juneau, so you're inside a lot. And it's, I guess now it's not such a surprising thing as of the F1 race over the weekend. But back then, they actually had racing on ESPN. And flipped around the dial and there was it had to be 82 or 83 something like that probably 1983 uh flipped on the tv and they had a camera in a porsche 956 going down the moson Strait at 230 miles an hour before the chicanes and i saw that on tv and it was a fork in the road Every, I would say every decision I've made, well, except for a few alcohol fuel decisions in college <laughs> um, and afterward, um, were probably influenced by what I saw on ESPN that day. And, and you were how old? It was before my 17th birthday because I remember I told my parents, uh, yeah, one of those, yeah, 15 or 16, something like that. I For my birthday that year, because you know, I think Lamaze in May and my birthday's in July and told my parents I wanted to go to racing school and they basically said, yeah, right. <laughs> they laughed and they laughed. <laughs> they laughed and laughed and, you know, went out and got a job and the day before my 17th birthday, I was in a race car, Riverside International Raceway, the Russell School. So how did you get from, from Juneau, Alaska to Riverside? I bought a plane ticket. <laughs> so, and that was, that was just what was on your radar as a, an opportunity to drive a race car, it was the first thing you found and said, let's go do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I looked into it and mm-hmm. saw that there were racing schools out there and, you know, bought 
you know, a lot of books and you, you know, it's, it's tough to get exposure to motorsports in Southeastern Alaska. I mean, I would, you know, I had to wait until the road and track came out months later to find out who won the Grand Prix two months previous. Mm-hmm. There was just no it, way to find yeah, out. Slightly before the uh, social media era. <laughs> exactly. Everything and, at your uh, fingertips. Yeah. And so I, uh, you know, I saw, I think it was probably in the back of Car and Driver and Road and Track and saw, you know, ad- advertisements for racing schools. And there was the Bondurant School and the Russell School. And um, seemed like the Russell School was, you know, more aligned with building race car drivers rather than being a high performance school. And, uh, so, yeah. So at, at 17, you, you make it to the, the Jim Russell school at Riverside Yep. and you realize, Hey, this is a thing I can do. And, and did you have some talent for it right away or was it totally like fish out of water? I mean, had you had driving experience before then? Yeah, I had I had driving experience. I mean, I taught myself how to heel toe downshift and double clutch um, using Bob Bondurant's book. You yeah, know, okay. and and you know, drove a had a manual transmission car, but uh, you know, jumped in the car and you know, wasn't quick um, the first couple days, but the third day, you know, I. I was fairly quick amongst my class, you know, who, who knows, those guys must have all been really slow, but uh, uh, was fairly quick, and it seemed that I was good at it, you know, and Russell had a had very much a ladder system, a basic three-day school, an advanced three-day school, a, a two-day preparation for competition, and then they had a race series, and that was the main reason I think I went with them, was they had their own internal race series in formula mazdas and sure and so uh won my first race in that race series at riverside and uh so will forever be my favorite track (laughs) (laughs) which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore yeah exactly it's a strip mall that i will never shop in so so you're commuting from alaska to southern california to race at this point or you've moved down here no i um went to um Went to, this at is the at time. end of high school. Yeah, this was at, at high school. Uh, I the I went to the Russell School the year before my um, senior year in high school. Um, then in high school, I had some aptitude for school. I was pretty good at it. Um, I think I was good at passing tests because um, I don't I don't really think of myself as that smart, but I was good at passing tests and uh, um, was looking because I was interested in cars and automotive. I got interested in the um, I did a search for automotive engineering, and there was a, a school called GMI Engineering Management Institute that at one time had been General Motors Institute. Um, I, when I went there, the first six weeks, it still was uh, General Motors Institute, but then it switched over. Now they call it Kettering University or something like that. But it was a pretty highly ranked uh, engineering school, and it was a engineering where you went to school for a 12-week semester, and then you would work in a sponsoring unit for 12 weeks. And you'd do that, so you had two work terms and two school terms, and that was your freshman year. And um, so I was sponsored and worked for the GM assembly plant in Van Nuys, California. Uh, home of Camaro and Firebird, the third generation Camaro Firebird, and worked there as an engineering co-op student from 85 to 90, and then worked there a couple years after I graduated. And um, So engineering 
during the week racing during the weekends. Yes. Yeah. It worked out great. You know, I, I had some income when I was in college from my job at GM and a majority of that income. I was fortunate that my parents helped out a lot with school and, um, I was, all of my disposable income went into race cars. <laughs> Some things have not say, changed. Has, has that changed at all from, from today? No. Maybe not, not. Not so you notice it. <laughs> so that's mid-80s. Fast forward to 2010. Mm-hmm. You're still racing quite competitively. And in 2010, you're the IMSA Continental Tire ST champion. Uh, you drove with Compass 360 Racing, um, and it was what a, a ten race season. Was that? I mean, uh, is it fair to say that that was kind of uh, it's kind of one of the highlights of your racing career? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it was. I, I got involved with. Uh, I think it was still maybe Grand Am back then before Am, it, sure. they merged with IMSA, but uh, got involved with that series when it was Grand Am Cup and then Coney Challenge, yeah. and they just kept changing the name on the door. Um, but uh, and ran with. Uh, and you ran there for for a number of years. Yeah, ran. My first race was in two thousand five. Um, and then 2006, I raced, um, Chevy Cobalts in the ST class with, uh, uh, John Powell out of, uh, out of Canada. And then, uh, 2007, uh, switched over to running Acuras and Hondas with Bill Fenton. Um, and it was a great time, had a lot of fun and, uh, but the series was getting pretty, pretty professional, a lot of money kind of moved beyond, I think what Bill wanted to the commitment required. And, uh, so over the, he quit at the end of 2009 and in 2010, I, we'd raced against compass for years. And so I reached out to them and, and we were able to put together a deal with, uh, uh I was driving with, uh, Lawson Aschenbach and, uh, we won our first race together. We, we met the, the first time we met was in the hotel when he picked me up the morning and we went and morning, practiced. The, the first race weekend? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and uh, went out and uh, worked out really. It was great. I think we both had similar backgrounds. We both had come up through open wheel cars. Mm-hmm. So we really liked the same thing in a car. Um, we didn't have to adjust, um, you know, the seat between us. You know, we both liked the same seating position. Just a lot of things fell so- into place. And you know, won the first race, came second at the second race, and you know, won two races that year, and uh, finished on the podium a few other times, and consistently finishing up front, and yeah, and yeah, got a championship out of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, it was pretty exciting at the end. We had the second half of the season, we had a couple rough races, and we were, you know, you know, you're in trouble when you're mathematically still in it for the championship, and. <laughs> Going into the last race at uh, Miller Motorsports Park, we were mathematically still in it. Um, BMW team should have won it, uh, but they had a, a differential or a half-shaft failure on the first lap, and they got back out, and you know we kept moving up, and they were moving up, and it turned out at the end of the race, uh, with, with, I don't know, maybe with 20 minutes left, we were running fourth, and they had the championship, and then we moved into third and we had the championship and then they moved up from whatever position they were in and it tied us in the championship at the finish. And we won the championship on the third tiebreaker. We had the same number of wins, same number of second places. And the third place we scored at Miller won us the championship. So that's a 
about as close as it gets. I mean, yeah. I don't know that there's ever <laughs> ever been a closer championship that I'm I'm aware of it, especially at that level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was completely unexpected, <clears throat> and the crew kept coming to me asking me, "Oh, well, what? How many points do we need to score?" And I'm like, "I have no idea," because I didn't even bother doing the math before <laughs> yeah. the weekend because we were, you know, literally we were mathematically it in it. Yeah. And, uh, so it's a shame because we really should have won it going away, but we had a couple of rough races and uh, that put us back. And as it was, yeah, it was very exciting. So very cool to win the championship. Gotcha. So, so in between kind of your, your start in racing as a teenager and then as a professional engineer and kind of is as a, a as a ride and handling engineer, is that the correct terminology or you, you did a couple different things? Yeah, that's, that's kind of where I, that was, being a ride and handling engineer was what I did for a majority of my career. Um, it's what I had wanted to do, but starting off in an assembly plant, um, there's not a real need for that level of engineering. That engineering done is done at the prototype level. So I was involved with vehicle manufacturing early on. Um, and for some people that's, they love manufacturing. Um, I wasn't one of them. Um, but, uh, at, at general motors, it was very difficult to change, uh, career paths. Um, once you were in manufacturing, you tended to stay in manufacturing. And so in 90, Maybe, yeah, 92 or 93, I guess, I, I left General Motors, um, mostly just for the purpose of getting out of the career path that I was in. I uh, went to work for Toyota in back out here in California. Um, you know, cause I'd spent a year in Detroit and decided that really wasn't my cup of tea. Uh, and uh, As Compared to California, I can't imagine what the differences might have been. Yeah, yeah, it's almost almost identical, almost identical, you know. But, uh, but but I mean, career path wise, if you're working for, uh, you know, a, a, an American, uh, you know, OEM car company, I mean, that seems like the place to be. Yeah, and, yeah. And I so mean, you, it's it's very rare. I mean, I guess I'm pretty lucky in that a majority of my um, automotive career was not spent in Detroit or in southeastern Michigan. Um, you know, I did a year there after the the Van Nuys plant closed. And uh, I relocated to Detroit, built prototype cars, was a manufacturing engineer building prototype cars for a year. Um, that was a, a thankless job. And uh, left there and went, actually came back out to California to work for Toyota as a service engineer, uh, just trying to figure out, you know, what was going wrong with the cars here in the country and communicating that back to Japan. And did that for a couple of years. And through Toyota, I was able to get into vehicle development. I transferred from the U.S. distributor over to the Toyota Technical Center. And then we, that I moved to Arizona. And in Arizona, I was able to start doing ride and handling development. And did that for four years with Toyota. And then went back to G- GM. And, and the ride and handling, was that, I mean, was that your goal in terms of creating a career for yourself as an engineer? What was your balance between pursuing the racing and you know building a, a sustainable you know career um, within the automotive industry I mean, you know how I, much compromise did you did you make or what what was your realistically mindset? I mean I you know like I said earlier all my decisions were influenced by driving um, so you know, and I and I actually don't having been in the industry, you know, for 30 plus years now, 33, 34 years, whatever it is. Um, I, I don't think of myself as a car guy. I think of myself as a driver. You know, I, I like cars, 
but I don't like cars, <laughs> you know? Sure. I mean, it's not my passion getting not into the garage. Not following the auto show yeah. updates of the newest, no, you know, no. trim level. Not at all. Yeah. And, and I, but I recognized very early on two things. I think a lot of racers would probably agree with that, yeah. that mindset or, or, you know, m- maybe more than you would think of, of you know, being a, a driver, being a racer rather than, than being a, a car guy. And there's certainly obviously a lot of overlap yeah, I, you know, I, I really loved the work, but I figured out two things very early on. One, motorsports takes a lot of money. And two, I'm horrible at chasing sponsors. You know, um, the, that is the most, uh, people who are good at that, I have the utmost respect for because it's the most ego bashing experience. Cold calling is just horrid. And I was bad at it. Um, and you know, had a few sponsors here and there over the years, but I was, I was bad at it. And so my goal, you know, was to, I knew I needed a certain degree of disposable income and it had to come from someplace. Um, I loved the work. Once I got into doing ride and handling, I loved the challenge of it. Um, you know, I love that, you know, riding and reading the car and figuring out what it's doing and making adjustments and making it better and making it better and the learning and the, you know, the unknown things that always catch you out. You know, you'd ride the car thinking you know what the change was going to do and it would do something unexpected. And it was like, so you kind of try and wrap your brain around why did it do what it did? And it's a fascinating challenge. And so this is now you're at Toyota doing ride and handling engineering where you're in a car driving evaluating changes making decisions on what works and what doesn't and and that's you know that's now i mean when you got into the engineering side of things and then did you then figure out that oh hey you know there's this other side of engineering and and of um you know developing these cars where i can be in a seat in a car every day and and be doing this ride and handling work was that did that come later yeah, I think I think initially that you know, the, like I say, the, the the car industry is very specialized. Sure. You get manufacturing engineers who are really good at that, and you get design guys, design release engineers, and and then the the development side of the business was what always stood out to me is where I wanted to go. Um, so the career decisions I made, especially early on were specifically to get me to that level, to get me to a development position, doing ride and handling development was what I wanted to do. Um, you know, it took, it, it, you know, I had to leave GM to do it, you know, and, you know, got in with Toyota and then went back into GM um, and, and did it for seven years there. And then, um, you know, and because of my motorsports background at GM, um, you know, I got involved with their high performance vehicle operations. I got involved with a lot of, uh, driver training activities at Toyota and at, and at GM where I was teaching other engineers how to drive on, on racetracks so that they could do it safely and effectively and, and didn't crash million dollar prototypes. Um, and, uh, so then, you know, left GM in uh, 2007 went to work for for hyundai kia out here back in california again i keep coming back to california so um but continue doing ride and handling development there um and so what what is that i mean i guess talk about what that work consists of is it this is proving grounds 
work where you're pounding out laps all day working on, you know, um, shock settings for you know for ride and handling feel for the street so you know somebody's yeah. latte yeah, I mean, doesn't spill yeah while he's driving the new yeah. chevy traverse or whatever something I mean, along those lines know, what, yes. i guess what what don't yeah. people know about what you do like yeah how, you know the 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 amazing thing that uh, it works out well for me because i don't really think i'm much of an engineer but um <laughs> there's uh you know because i just kind of wing it i mean honestly i just wing it but we, we can edit all this yeah, out don't worry no you better not but uh <laughs> but um you know designers design the vehicle and uh, Automotive, every automotive manufacturer in the world has tried at one point or another. I was just at Approving Grounds and talked to some Tesla people, and Tesla people have figured out that they're going to do all this stuff in math, and they're going to go straight from a design phase to a production phase, and they're just going to get rid of all these development people because they just see it as... It's a it's a twelve to eighteen month process um, that they should just be able to do that in math because you know Tesla are the smartest people in the room, and uh, the reality is that I just smile and nod and I say when you screw it up I'll still be here right right um, save my number just in case yes you're gonna need it yeah. and you know so designers design cars and then what every manufacturer over the years has proven is that you need to give those cars to development people. Um, not just for what I did, which was ride and handling development, but also for powertrain, for NVH, noise, vibration, and harshness, for heating, ventilation, air, cool air conditioning stuff. All these things have to be developed in the car. It's one thing to say you're going to def- you know, design it, but then there's a lot of tuning work that goes on. So as a as a ride and handling engineer, I would love to tell you that my job was handling every day. <laughs> And the reality is that even if you're working on a, a Corvette uh, program or something very performance-oriented, um, 90% of your life is spent doing ride comfort. Uh, starts off usually in prototype cars at proving grounds um, because proving grounds are you know confidential and and they have a, a fair number of surfaces that you can rough the car in um, and a lot of it involves just driving down really horrible roads um, and saying you know that really is awful. <laughs> And then going quantifying how yeah, awful it is. Yeah, and, and, then, and, and that's the problem is that the roads at proving grounds are 90th percentile roads. So they're really abusive. And you drive on these roads and then you go back to the garage and you say, okay, you know, too much spring, too much bar, too much compression rebound damping, front and So and you've rear. got a shelf full of changes uh, you can make. Bushings up, yeah, bushing libraries that, um, you know, I had at General Motors, I would have bushing libraries for, you know, for every bushing in the car. And they may be from a 40 durometer, 45, 50, 55, 60, 65 durometer. And I would have a whole library of front lower control arm bushings in butyl and a whole another library in those same durometers in high damp natural rubber and another library of those same bushings in natural rubber and every one of those parts has different characteristics and so you can see how 
when you start getting into all the bushings in the car and all the, and now, uh, now some of it's done electronically now. I mean, in the old days and back in the old days when I was doing it, um, we used to, uh, you know, you steering changes were going in and really changing the, the, the T bar or the torsion bar in the steering gear that would change and changing the valve in the gear. Um, now, you know, a lot of that's done electronically. So you're just tickling the, the lap board and, and, uh, change and making changes there. But it honestly, I don't know that it speeds it up any, um, you know, you can make an awful lot of changes in the same t- time period that you can make fewer changes doing it in hardware as opposed to doing it in software. But, um, that's what my job was, was primarily tuning, steering, um, spring rates, stab bars, dampers, bushings, um, steering calibrations, and an awful lot of tire development. Uh, the biggest thing that people don't understand about tires, and it's the most important part of the car. It's the only part of the par- car that's supposed to touch the ground. <laughs> um, you know, there are and, exceptions to every rule. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it really is the most important. And most automotive manufacturers develop the tires the original equipment tires for that vehicle specifically so you may be able to go buy a 245 40 r19 from the same manufacturer in the aftermarket and it is i guarantee you not the same tire unless you really know for sure it's the original equipment tire um so whenever as as a in this process of you know, developing these cars for a manufacturer. So uh, for example, say you're working on a Corvette and you're going through all these, you know, spring changes, damper changes in in this process. Are you then evaluating tires at the same time or do they, you know, has the, the OEM said, you know, this is the car, this is the tire we, we, you know, we're contracted to use or we're, we're partnered with, you know, maybe it's continental or Michelin or whoever. And is it, your job to say, Hey, look, make it work on this tire. Or is it, is the, do you have a tire catalog of, Hey, you know, you can work within these different sizes or these different compounds or these different manufacturers. Yeah. It's how much of that. It, it would be lovely as a ride and handling engineer, um, to have a tire as a fixed known quantity at the beginning of the development program. But the reality is, is that I know some manufacturers have tried that, Um, but it doesn't seem to work. Um, For the most part, you're developing the tire at the same time. So there's a little bit of, you'll you'll get a new tire submission, um, you'll evaluate five or six different constructions of tires in, you know, in in all these different areas of the compounding, the tread pattern, um, the construction of the tire, belt angles, and all these things that, and, you know, compounding's black magic. I don't even... I don't even pretend to understand that, but, um, then while that's, you'll, you'll develop a tire, you'll pick the best tire and then you'll generally give the manufacturer feedback saying, Hey, I would like better damping on rough roads or the NVH guys would say there's too much boomingness or we're, we're hearing this cavity noise, which kind of sounds like a basketball when you're bouncing it, you know, and that sort of thing. And then we'll take that best tire from that submission and we'll tune the chassis around that tire. But when we get the next submission of tires, tire submissions take, you know, 12 weeks 
usually to get that turned around, they have to go back and build a whole new selection of tires. So that's why this development process is a 12 to 18 month process. Like Absolutely. you said, it's not, Absolutely. you know, do the math yeah. and then build the car. It's, it's a process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, it, like I say, it would be great to pick a tire off the shelf and say, I'm just going to develop the car around that tire. But then, unfortunately, you run into limitations. Um, sure. I know there's a manufacturer that I was just had some contact with recently, and they they told me, "Oh yeah, we just pick a tire off the shelf," you know, and they and they weren't Porsche, and they were picking a Porsche tire, and that's great until Porsche comes to the manufacturer and says, "Yeah, we're going to change that tire," and then yeah. then you're as a manufacturer, you're kind of at the mercy of that manufacturer. They may come in and change the tire, and the manufacturer, the, the tire manufacturer is going to, going to make them happy, not you, right. because you're just buying it off the shelf. Right. You and know? you may never know there's a difference until yeah. it yeah. shows up later down the road. Yeah. And, and, and tires are so important, you know, they're not a, what I would view as an interchangeable thing to cars. I mean, my, my personal car is at the dealer right now, getting my second set of original equipment tires put back on it, you know, cause it's, uh, I spent too much of my life doing this job to <laughs> to go buy you know billy bob's tires off the shelf someplace so you know translating that work to the racing side of what you do i mean it you know in most race series nowadays there is a spec tire and so you know that is a known quantity and when you hop into a race car you've got all this experience you know changing out every component of a ride and handling you know the ride and handling side of the car, I mean, how has that served you in terms of developing race cars or making changes? Or, I mean, do you feel like you are, your butt dyno is as in tune as any professional driver? I, you know, I think I'm probably better at some things, um, especially as ride comfort related stuff. Um, I can read that, um, very well. I mean that, cause like I said, that has been a majority of that's 90% of my job is, is ride comfort oriented. And so, but so ride it, comfort would be different than limit handling. Absolutely. Stuff. So ride that, comfort okay. is normal driving in the, in the linear range of the tire, normal, what the customer will be doing at normal customer speeds, just on horrid roads. And then, um, you know, you, you go out and you make changes, but it's all, reading the vehicle it's all sensing and feeling what's going on and trying to figure out you know because there's so many things there's so many interactions in an automobile you know you hit a bump you hit you hit it with the front then you hit it with the rear okay the front goes into compression then goes into rebound the rear hits it goes into compression and into rebound and then so you're trying to define in as you drive down the road okay if i'm going to make a shock change first i got to figure out what do i really hate you know, is it is the nail that's sticking up in the front or is it the rear? Which I got to get my hammer out and hammer that nail down. But, you know, is it the front or the rear? And then it's OK. Is it is it compression or is it rebound? And then what part of the curve is it is a low speed thing? Is it a mid range speed or is it like an impact shock thing, which is in a high high piston speeds? And that determines what parts inside the shock absorber you change. And so it's a, it's very much a, a process of reading. And I think that's, you know, driving on racetracks is a very iterative process. You go out and ah, I could have braked a little bit later. I could have got on the power a little sooner. I could have, you know, et cetera. You're, and every lap you're, you're thinking that way. And the ride and handling tuning is similar mentally because you're just reading the car and trying to make those changes. So, you know, for me, as it, keep, it kept me in it. 
Um, and then when I was at GM, uh, towards the end of my second stint at GM, I got involved with high performance vehicle operations. And so we were doing performance variants of production cars. You know, the CTSV was done by HPVO, um, the original one anyway. The supercharged Cobalt and the Cobalt SS was done by us. And so that's um, stuff done at the limit that this is. Yeah, that's a lot more. That's a lot more racetrack related stuff. So, you know, unfortunately, there were a lot of really cool uh, stillborn programs. There was a. There was a 300 horsepower Pontiac Solstice that never saw the light of day. That was my last HPVO program, and it would have been, it would have been really cool. There's, there's always the the story at General Motors that nothing can be faster than the Corvette, and we were doing performance predictions for that program from a lap time standpoint, and we weren't faster than a, a Z06 certainly, but we were getting awfully close to being faster than a base Corvette. And um, I showed it to my director there, and, and he was like, ooh, yeah, we can't say that. And so <laughs> our, official, our official documents were lies because we were just simply trying to hide it from the Corvette people. And I think I don't know Didn't about all offend. the internal politics at GM, but I understand when you get close to being faster than a Corvette, your funding has a way of disappearing. Yeah, you start popping up on their radar yes. uh, in a bad way. Yes, absolutely. So. Copy that. And so, so some of that testing did did that happen all at the proving grounds, or some of that was at the Nurburgring, correct? Uh, that was yeah, it was at the Nurburgring. Um, a lot of race tracks. I spent a lot of time, and that was that was a few years between my own racing and uh, the work I was doing at, at General Motors, whether it was on their handling track or at tracks. Um, we would go. We would go to tracks in the winter. We went to Barber. We went to. Uh, it was Moroso Park at the time, but now it's Palm Beach International. Um, went to Phoenix, went to Spring Mountain. A uh, lot of different tracks that we went to over the years, uh, Groton and Mossport. And and a lot of that was doing limit handling evaluations in, in a performance environment. So, yeah, and, and the Nürburgring. Got to go to the Nürburgring a couple times and drive an industry pool. And, uh, and so that's the whenever you see spy shots of, you know, the newest baddest coolest cars on the internet i mean that's that's the the test driver that's the the david telenius of today you know taking around the car and doing this kind of ride and handling work in, in industry pool type of sessions and these are as i understand it closed sessions where the manufacturers essentially rent out the track and kind of share time with each other but it's only for you know, developing these kinds of new cars yeah but, yeah it's it is honestly the coolest thing ever because <laughs> every manufacturer is there and that a lot of the tire suppliers are there and you go into there's a little pit lane at uh t13 right where the coca-cola corner is that's the industry pool pit because they only use the Nordschleife; they don't use the gp circuit and uh they everybody has their prototypes parked side by side and everybody is super respectful and yeah, I mean the you know car goes by and you go holy crap! Look at the brakes on that thing! You know, some massive you know uh, very impressive. But everybody's very respectful and everybody's out on track. And uh, yeah, I guarantee you. I mean the the Porsche guys, the Mercedes guys who are there all the time. Um, boy, they push hard. 
on and track. these are all professional level drivers. I mean, how do you become? How do you get a, a lot of them to are, be an industry pool driver? Yeah, a lot of them are development engineers like me. These are not generally speaking race car drivers. These are engineers who have the the driving skill. Um, you have to go through to be. Um, you know, at General Motors, we had certain driver qualification levels we had to go through. Um, and uh, so once you got to the top level, then you were kind of, you could be considered to be a Nürburgring guy. And then, you know, and I was one of the lucky ones who got to go over to the Nürburgring for uh, two trips, did a lot of Cadillac stuff the first trip. And second trip, I went over and we did the tuning for the... Uh, uh, Pontiac Solstice, uh, the turbo car. Um, and I would say that 90, 95% of the tuning of that car in production was what we developed at the Nürburgring. Um, yeah, it was a very cool program. And, you know, you, you're not building race cars, so you have to kind of temper your... Not everything we did was for racetrack performance. You kind of temper it um, and you say, okay, yeah, but this still needs to work on Michigan roads in the spring with potholes and frost heaves and et cetera. Um, but it was a great trip, uh, best trip I ever had. I mean, it was, there were no managers. It was terrific. It was, <laughs> it, was, it was me, the engineer who was responsible for the program, and one technician. There the, were three of us and one car. The cats were away and the mice were running the show. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we had a fantastic, um, very productive, identified a huge number of issues and developed fixes there in the garage at, uh, you know, working out of the, the Manti shop in, in Germany when Manti Racing is the shop we rented space in. So, yeah, it was very, very great. Experience. And so how, how much time? Time you spend on a trip like that developing this car and making changes and you know what how much do you hope to accomplish i mean how do you go into a trip like that where you're saying okay we're sending you to germany to go to go do uh do, do the lord's work on this car and yeah. <laughs> you know what are, what are your expectations you know, the, how do you approach it i got i got was nominated to um the the, the engineer on that program um was not nurburgring certified and so um I got nominated to do his driving for him, um, which initially I think you can imagine wasn't uh, real well received. Um, and uh, but he he and I came to an understanding very quickly. Um, we did a fair amount of development where I just wanted to be familiar with the car. So when we were in Milford at the proving grounds, we spent a day in the car, just me pounding around the Milford road course, um, going out and running five laps. Milford is the, the GM proving grounds. Yes. Yeah, GM's Milford proving grounds. And is it's that, their main proving grounds in Michigan. Is that talk about quickly the process, I guess, of you know, why were you, qualified what what made you qualify what was the process like to get signed off to so that you are the guy that when they need to send somebody to the Nürburgring or to wherever you know how do you have how did you make it to the top of the the food chain there at GM to be one of those certified a, a drivers of, a lot of it came out of uh of driver training um when I when I got went back to GM there they basically did not have a driver training program uh got involved with the the guy who was my director in HPVO uh John Heinrichy um John was you know I mean he's won I don't know 20 30 something like that national championships in SCCA he's done a lot of pro racing and honestly I don't think there's anybody at that time anyway, who was in a front engine rear drive Corvette um, production car. I don't think there's anybody who was faster than he was. I mean, the guy was 
just quick. And he went to my understanding, the way that he came to me, he had gone to a track and I don't know what track it was with a bunch of engineers and was rather shocked by the level of driving talent. And, or lack thereof. Yeah, and was concerned from a, a safety. And also, you know, I mean, you'd love to say it was all about safety, but I'm sure there was a financial component there that, you know, because prototypes are all hand-built. So when you've got a, a, you know, I don't care if it's a, a Hyundai Accent prototype, it's still a million-dollar car. And, and it's the only one. And it's the only one, yeah, you know, or a, one of a handful. Um, so... You know, if you crash one, it's it's a it big sets things deal. back. It's a big, big time, deal, and so, time wise and financially, I'd imagine. Yeah, he came he came to me after that, and we started because I had done some driver training stuff at Toyota, and he came to me, and we started talking about it, and we with a few other people put together a driver training program at GM where we were teaching engineers how to drive. And we had a couple of criteria. We had the level two and then the level three guys. To, to be a level two guy, you had to run within 4% of the lap time of John Heinrichsy in a Corvette. So, I mean, it was, it was a challenge um, to get within 4%. And John and I went through and made a list of all the racetracks he'd ever driven on and all the ones I've driven on, and we basically defined them as either a level two or a level three track. A level two track was a racetrack, you know, Gingerman or someplace like that in Michigan, uh, where you really couldn't hurt yourself too badly. The speeds were fairly low. You couldn't, you couldn't get in too much trouble there. Um, and then there were level three tracks, Mossport, uh, Watkins Glen, Willow Springs, the big track at Willow, where you're going Godspeed. And... <laughs> And yeah, you can really hurt yourself. And obviously, the Nurburgring is yeah. a level three track. Um, so, in order to be a level three driver, you had to lap, and it was consistently lap within two percent of John Heinrichsy. So, on most racetracks, that gave you about you know a second, second and a half that you had to be within John. And is if John's pushing, that's no joke. John's pushing hard. I, I, I remember mean, it, we went to... Uh, I'm guessing he only has one speed. I mean, oh, it's not yeah. like he holds back to help his buddies get certified. I mean, no, no. Oh. I, I told John one time, John, you are really bad for people's ego. Um, yeah, we, we <laughs> Other had, than his own. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, had, we, we were sure. at um, Groton, and we had a group of guys who were trying to get to the level, uh, get themselves certified, and and John laid down a lap early in the morning, and these guys whittled away at it, whittled away at it, whittled away at it, just got within the 4%, and John got back in the car and went a second a lap faster. <laughs> and it's just, you could see it was like deflating a balloon. I mean, these guys' egos were just crushed. So I was one of the, the level three guys. I uh, was able to go out and in a you know very, I think I, it took me three laps to get my level uh two and another three laps to get my level three. So I, because John was, he's a fantastic driver, but a lot of people were intimidated by him in the car. Um, and he, by his own admission, I think would say he's not the greatest instructor. Um, I think he's a bit one of these, you know, one of these Einstein types who's just playing fast and really can't explain why. But, but boy, uh, the greatest, one of the greatest development engineers I've ever worked with. I mean, the guy's fantastic. And, um, 
really knows product very well, can really read and come back and just regurgitate everything, every corner. Uh, this is what it's doing on entry, mid corner, exit, you know, and this is what I like to, you know, so he's fantastic that way. But he got me involved as an instructor. And I was one of probably one of the primary instructors there for a long time was teaching people and trying to help people get to their level three or level two and level three um, certifications. And so, so other than Heinersy and yourself, I mean, do do any of these other engineers or other people who are you know trying to get certified as level two and level three people are, are these racing people or these people who have track experience or I mean, are you guys kind of the the top of the heap. Because it's, I mean, you're still racing full time um, at this time, correct? Full time ish. Well, yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, was there ever, you know, at any point in your career where you, you weren't racing? I mean, no, no. I've, I've driven every year since yeah, 1984. Yeah. Every so. decision you've ever made. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, no, I, so, so they, that intimidation they, you know, factor. The, the, well, the, the certification level, I, you know, I spent a lot of time riding right seat with people and, not always the greatest thing riding right seat um as we as anybody who's ever ridden right seat has will can can attest to but i by coaching in and out of the car and riding right seat i could get almost anybody to their to the four percent level with you in the right seat though with me you're you're effectively driving the car from the right seat by telling them what to do. No, do. no. It, when it came no. down to certification, um, a lot of times on their own. You know, they were on their own. Um, sure. you know, well, and, I, you know, I, it takes the weight out of the car too. Cause you know, having a, a 160 pounds in the, in the right seat doesn't help the car go faster. And there were, there were a, a bunch of people at GM who kind of felt like in a lot of ways that I, as an instructor was holding them back because my goal, um, as an instructor was to teach them the process for how to go fast as right. opposed to, you know, cause you, they you want got, the quick answer. They want, yeah, they want the I, quick answer. I, cause they want to get certified. They want to check that box and get certified and yeah. then go to the Nürburgring. And, you know, knowing mm. what the turn in point for turn one on the Milford road course is a very useful piece of information on the Milford road course. It doesn't help you a bit at Hotzenbach. Right. At the Nurburgring, and so I would try and teach a process for this is how you get your this is how you figure it out for yourself. And the 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 successful students I had, the students who were able to go beyond the four percent level up to the two percent level, once they got beyond the four percent level, it was very difficult for me sitting right seat to see any obvious errors because they weren't making a one second error in one corner. They were making 10 tenth of a second errors throughout a lap that were very hard to see. And the only way to really get that is that self-evaluation process. So, you know, I would teach them that and then they would get. And so, you know, as an instructor was, you know, to get back to your original question, that was how I kind of as one of the instructors be, kind of got myself to the top of the heap. Um, because I was helping out and it was, it was a very neat place to be because I got to do a lot of development driving some for some new technology stuff. It was very cool, you know, um, torque vectoring differentials and, um, 
limit electronic limited slip differentials that are open diff on corner entry and lock diff on corner exit and limited slip somewhere in the middle and <laughs> you just very cool stuff and and working with engineers who were very sharp but didn't have the driving skill and i get out of the car and it'd help be, them connect the dots oh yeah and i would be expected to just download in intimate detail everything i felt all the way through the corners and you know so that definitely applied to the motorsport side of the business. And then, you know, being involved with HPVO and getting a lot of seat time. I mean, there were a couple of years there between my driving on my racing and my work stuff that I was in, in a car on a racetrack almost 100 days a year. So your business now, your professional career now looks a little different than it did five years ago, three years ago? Uh, you made four, a- Yeah, four years ago, I... There, there's a lot of corporate politics. Um, what? And yeah, yeah, and that's a whole no. other story. And uh, <laughs> I tell you, it um, through the years, um, it it kind of beats you down. And I finally reached my uh, limit of how much corporate politics I could take. What was the the straw? Without naming names, if you don't want to, that that broke the the. The back in terms of there were some there were some decisions being made from a safety standpoint that were concerning (laughs) that and we'll just leave it at that nicely okay yeah they Mm. you know um at you know general motors went through a, a horrible thing with the whole um ignition switch thing that disabled uh you know the airbags in cars when you bump the ignition switch and um i was referred to i had didn't work for gm at the time but according to my friends who were in the discovery um meetings with all the lawyers uh, my name was all over it Mm. because we had identified it on a vehicle we kind of came out of our group came out of it looking like the good guys at GM, but we had identified it as an issue because during testing on a couple different occasions, I had bumped the ignition switch with my knee doing a heel toe downshift and had turned the car off. Um, so, and so this was in documentation. You this said, hey, was this documented. Is, this happened. This was documented. My electrical f- engineer in the group that I worked in HPVO, he wrote an email to the release engineer and said, you know, basically wrote him the, the, the map that said, well, what's the detent pressure and what, what would it cost to increase that and yada, yada, yada. And, and nothing was ever done. Um, I don't think the electrical guy, I know I didn't know at the time I was intimately aware when I bumped the ignition switch that the electronic power steering no longer worked. And that the ABS no longer worked. Um, I don't think any of us recognized that by bumping the ignition switch, we turned off the airbag. I don't that that, sure. that discussion never came up. I never crashed a car because of it, so it wasn't. But I would say that from that day that it happened, um, from that point on, we started taking all the fobs off the keys as just part of our pre-track preparation. So we were adjusting to it in our development. Um, it just, 
you know, something never got fixed. Um, I, th- that whole episode is referred to in the 300 page document about the whole thing that came out and it's, you can find it. Uh, it's public news. I'm not, my name is not in there, but I'm definitely referred to because I think the only reason my name's not there is I wasn't, uh, I was no longer a GM employee at that time. But when you get involved in something like that, and, and people like me as a ride and handling guy, um, we make decisions that have a safety component to them. Um, the whole Ford Explorer Firestone tire thing was a, a decision made by a ride and handling engineer to lower the tire pressure. Um, it was done for, I would guess, ride comfort reasons. Um, the engineer, I guarantee, didn't have any idea that the average tire pressure, I mean, I think he lowered it, I don't quote me, but maybe from 29 to 26 PSI. Um, but my understanding is when they... And that, that's the the recommendation then goes on the sticker on the door. Goes on the door sticker, so yeah. That, Everybody yeah. is, suppo- is supposed to that's run it there. That's where you're supposed to do it. And But my understanding is when they brought all those, they recalled all those tires and brought them back in, um, one of the things they did is they measured tire pressure on all the vehicles coming in. And the average was below 20. So... Mm-hmm. You know, had had they started off at 29 and they dropped, you know, it, versus they started off at 26 and then they dropped below 20 and then it's 100. Kind of outside the you window, know, asphalt temperatures, barely. 140 degrees in Texas in the middle of July and you're driving around on 18 PSI and, yeah. you know, there's the tires come apart, you know. So th- these kind of safety decisions are made and that was, there were some things that happened towards the end of my career that I decided that was enough. Um, I'd made enough safety decisions in my life and, uh, trying to do the right thing. And, um, so I moved, you know, I moved out, um, left, uh, Hyundai Kia where I'd been working for the last seven years and went out on my own as a, uh, vehicle dynamics, um, consulting engineer. Uh, I have my own business, uh, Telenius group, and uh, I do uh, work with manufacturers and tire companies, uh, help them develop uh, components and, and vehicles. Um, I do a lot of uh, motorsports-related stuff, obviously. Uh, driver coaching is a major part of that. I have some corporate clients that I work with there and some private clients I do driver coaching for. And then do a little bit of sports marketing, which I wish I was better at because that's where the money is. But uh, haven't figured out how to do that yet. So that's what I do these days. And so in, in the meantime of, you know, creating this new company and branching out on your own, you know, you're still doing, like you said, tire testing and development work, but you're also still racing. So let's talk a little bit about that because you introduced me to the Nürburgring, what is it, maybe three years ago now, four years ago? Yeah, uh, something I came like over that. and did a race with you. It was something that had been on my radar for a long time. I know, you know, you'd been there a few times and, and now I am totally hooked on that place and, and racing there and what that's all about. Um, I wasn't there last year, but after you and I did a race together, uh, I went back you know, multiple times, maybe half a dozen times after that, I've brought some of my clients over there. Um, and it's, it's a really incredible place. The, the, the racing environment there is kind of 
it's unique. It's unlike, you know, anything else we've got here in the States, not just because of the track, but you know, it's, it's a single championship at one track because why, why would you go anywhere else? Um, when you've got the Nürburgring as your, in your backyard. Um, and so, so talk a little bit about, you know, now that, that you've worked at the Nürburgring as a ride and handling guy, you've been in industry pool, but now you're, you're there doing, I'd say a fair amount of, of racing at the Nürburgring over the past few years. You know, what, what led you to racing at the ring competing um, versus, you know, the, the previous racing you've been doing in the, in the States. Um, yeah. And, you know, what when, are you doing currently? When, yeah. When I was, when I was running here in the States, you know, I was running the, you know, the Con- continental tire series. Um, and from, you know, 2010 onward was running full seasons. Um, and it was a, you know, I, you know, you say what you will about guys who bring money, but I bring money. And, but you know what, but I also won a championship. So, you know, uh, you know, and I brought money and I had gotten to the point where with my disposable income from work, I was able to fund full seasons in competitive rides. Um, And so that was a great thing for me. And had I not left my full-time job, I no doubt would have continued with that. Um, would have loved to have run over in Europe, but it was the 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 unknown. The I didn't. I had no exposure to I other than having been there and seen it. But I I I had the impression that it was unattainable cost wise. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and little did you know. Yes. <laughs> and and I found out that um, when I left, you know, my full time job. It, I no longer had that level of disposable income that I knew I was going to get a paycheck every month. It was the not the repeatable. I mean, I I'm doing fine. I'm not living in a van down by the river. Um, I you know you know I hope to eat next week too. Um, but, but but if but if the choice became live in a van down by the river and continue to race or give up racing. Well, I would live in a van under, a nice underneath van, the bridge at Adenau at the Nürburgring. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a nice yeah. van, though. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah. So I, you know, when I left, I no longer had. I felt anyway the funding to do full seasons in to Conti. compete at the level that you yeah. were accustomed to competing. And at. so and it was sort of a, a blessing in disguise because sure. it, you know, I I said, hey. You know, I've always wanted to try this stuff in Germany, and and so was able to reach out to an American uh, driver over there, uh, a guy named Rob Holland, who was involved with Rotec Racing, and was able to come over. And um, my, you know, my first race at the Nurburgring was uh, managed to win the silly thing. I should have quit undefeated, but <laughs> I keep going back. And um, yeah, so for the last. You know, three years. I guess I've run four races a year there. Um, run the, the, you know, some VLN races, which are usually four or six hour races, and then I've also run the twenty four hours at the Nurburgring the last three years. And last year managed to finish it for the first time, uh, which was it wasn't a pretty finish, but it was a finish nonetheless. And uh, last year I got involved um, with the Aston Martin Test Center. They have a vehicle development center at the Nurburgring, like most manufacturers, BMW sure. and everybody, all the all the players yeah, are there. And- Take a second. Talk about, I guess, th- th- how unique that whole situation 
at the Nurburgring is because it's not just like a racetrack plopped down in the middle of nowhere. Maybe there's a couple, you know, maybe there's a team that has a workshop near the racetrack. I mean, th- this is a pretty special, interesting place because right across the street from the track is this huge, essentially it's a, it's a business park full of race teams and, and manufacturers and OEMs that set up these. Yeah. Yeah. You, you go down the street in, in moist path there and it's, and it's, there's, you know, there's BMW and there's Mercedes and there's, Jaguar and Aston Martin and you know I believe GM has a facility there now and everybody you know all these and it's one big beautiful building after beautiful building that um, that they use you know so when they send people over there to do vehicle development um, they've got a facility that that is fairly confidential that they can work out of that has all the facilities they need when i worked with gm we rented space in the manti shop right for manti the, the racing porsche factory team yeah yeah and now gm has their own facility um jaguar land rover aston martin built a building now uh aston martin's in there on their own now that aston martin has become independent um, so they do a lot of vehicle development. A lot of it is aerodynamics. Um, a lot of it is making cars work on at autobahn speed. So they don't spend all their time at the ring, but they spend their time on the autobahn sure. um, developing cars. I mean, I, so I guess talk about the difference between maybe, maybe what the racing is like there and the the business or financial side of it versus racing in the States. I mean, you were kind of hinting it, you know, that's why you've, you've raced there. And, you know, the, I guess the environment of, of professional racing in the States, I mean, how has that changed in the last yeah, five the, to 10 the, years the versus easiest way. how it works over there? I mean, yeah. it's, it's different. And, and I've got some experience over there and you do too. And, and so it's, I guess I want to give people who, who, maybe are interested or, or, you know, have an idea of a little bit of an idea how, you know, sports car racing or professional motorsports works here in the U S versus how it works specifically at the Nürburgring. But you know, that, that kind of spills out into the rest of how racing works in Europe. Yeah. Well, I, I think what you find at the Nürburgring is a result of all the things around the culture in, supporting, in Europe, in Europe yeah. supporting uh, that because, you know, here in the States, um, road racing is not mainstream you know we all wish it well those of us involved wish it was more, more mainstream but it's really not and you know short of the indy 500 and the daytona 500 a lot of people don't watch a lot of motorsports uh europe it's much more popular and also geographically yeah that's, every that great seems to be... every great racetrack you ever want to drive is within an area about the size of the state of california you know, I mean, Spa is a yeah. hundred kilometers away from the Nurburgring. You know, uh, Monza is not that far. England has, you know, Silverstone, Brands Hatch, Snedderton, Donington, etc., yeah. etc. Et I mean, there's so many racetracks. Um, and then France, there's so many great tracks there. Le Mans and, you know, all these places. So there are so many great tracks there that racing here in the States, largely my image of it is... Racing here in the States is a bit of a seller's market. There's only on, if you want to call it the professional level or semi-professional level of motorsport, you've got Conti with IMSA and you've got World Challenge with the, what was, was SCCA, I guess, I don't know who was going to... USAC now. USAC, yeah, or, yeah USAC or whatever. Uh, IndyCar, I guess. IndyCar, yeah, yeah is, is sanctioning that now. So... Um, 
you you know there's only two series and so as a result there's a limited number of seats available and i don't know for sure but i get the impression that you know it's that team owners can kind of charge what they want because there's a limited number of seats over in europe there's a huge amount of series that run there's a lot of cars and a lot of tracks and all these different series. So it's much more of a buyer's market over there than it is a seller's market here. You know, yeah. if, if, if you don't like what they're charging to run VLN at the Nürburgring, well, I'll go run Fun Cup. Or I'll <laughs> right. go run, you know... 24-hour at Spa and something. Yeah, or, little yeah Preventix series. Or I'll right. go do this. Or I'll go do yeah, that. Regional and, series after regional series. Yeah. and But I think it, it, it backs up to the point you just made about, you know, geographically, everything's so much closer. And so, you know, a lot of the... You know, it is what it is in terms of moving people and equipment across the country uh, in, the, in the U.S. And we've got just larger distances to travel when you've got a, a 10-race... IMSA schedule that's spread out across the country and spread out throughout the year, you know, the, just the hard costs of participating are a lot different than if your workshop is based at the Nürburgring and your, your, you know, your crew members live an hour away or two hours away. And, you know, the race weekend starts on Friday afternoon and ends on Saturday afternoon. Yeah. It's not these four or five day race weekends where you're dragging equipment and people. Yeah, you're traveling 2,500 miles across country with with 15 people that you got to drag to support it. And yeah, Yeah. the the logistical um, commitment, especially for some a series like VLN, which is all run at the Nurburgring. Right. All of you know, majority of our crew guys sleep at home every night. Yeah. You know, they go home and they sleep at home. Yeah. And, and a lot of the the shops, the race shops that are located directly across the track have houses or apartments attached to them. And so I know, you know, when you and I were over there racing together, the the shop, the team that we raced with, Rotec, literally the shop was attached to the team house and it was like a six bedroom kind of a dorm style deal. And and the the crew members drive up from Frankfurt or Munich or wherever they're from, you know, a couple hours away from the ring, stay for the night or two nights at the team shop. There's no hotel bill. And and it is what it is. And I realize now I'm just going to edit this whole thing out because this is a kind of a a quote unquote, you know, uh, secret that that (laughs) this racing over there is, is so great. And it is more accessible, I think, than than you or I yeah. or anyone really um, had ever imagined. And I think yeah. that, you know... I was scared away for years by what I perceived as the logistics and the difficulty, especially the, the, in, especially the language barrier the language, going sure. to Germany. And, but the teams are so well... They're so integrated well, into motorsport in Germany. This year, I had to get my A permit this year. Um, and it, the Nurburgring, you have to have a, a permit that allows you to run a B permit, allows you basically to run a a low power to weight car and then a high power to weight car. Um, you know, it requires an A permit. And getting my A permit, they again made it more difficult this year. Um, they make it more difficult every year. What did they do this year? I have oh, to renew you, my A permit. And yeah, you have to show. Uh, they asked for. Um, driver logs to show that you actually had recorded the laps you said you would record it. So I, you know, and I was like, Oh my God, where do I get those? So I called my contact, Rebecca Kessler at Aston Martin, who's kind of my, my interface, my liaison there. 
And I said, Rebecca, can you help me with this? And she calls DMSB and she knows a friend at DMSB and DMSB sure. supplies me with the driver change logs that I put with my application and sent back to DMSB. <laughs> so, right. But, and then. And the DMSB is like the IMSA, SCCA, the, the, IMSA, IMSA the IMSA of, yeah, of German motorsport. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, not and just, not just the Nürburgring, but. Yeah. Well, and then there's ADAC too, and I'm not sure what the difference is. Auto, the ADAC is the auto club of Germany, and they sanction some races, but it, DMSB, I know it does the, the, the licensing. Um, right. Deutsches Sport Motor Build or something right. like that. What, what you said. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and then, you know, they, they say all over this application that they have to have, you know, your paper copies. They won't do it by email or whatever. And, but I, you know, because timing was getting tight for me to go over to Germany this year, I went ahead and emailed them scanned copies of everything. And, Two days before my hard copies were due to arrive, my A permit was in the hands of the Aston Martin Test Center. <laughs> so it's, it's nice to know people who know people in sure. Germany. And, and we saw that with Rotec, with, with yeah, having Uli knowing you know, he's been right. there forever. And you go stand in line and Uli talks German he, to someone. He holds your hand and drags you and where you need to go. And then you go and... stand in another line and Uli talks German to someone. And then in the end, they hand you your gold A permit. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And you're like, you're all right, I don't know how this worked out, but yep. it all you worked out. You just nod and smile and hop yeah. in the race car. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And so, so you'll be racing with the Aston Martin Test Center this year for multiple different VLNs. You're doing the 24 hour. Yeah, event. yeah. Last year I did. And what car um, are you driving this? Well, year? last year I drove. Uh, started off the season in there. They have what they its nickname is Woody, um, but it's a uh, V12 uh, Vantage um, that is a just a, the coolest looking car in the world, and it's a V12. It's faster than factory GT3 cars in a straight line, but it's not all that fast in the corner. Corners and just because um, it's heavier, yeah, it's yeah, just, just the high CG and and it's and it's heavy. So uh, towards the end of last year, I drove two races in that car. I drove the VLN two and the twenty four hour in in Woody, and then got into uh, they have a race uh, set up uh, Aston GT eight, which is the GT eight. They there's only one hundred fifty of them in the world. Um, they don't sell them. They never sold them here in the States, but it's a lightweight version of the V8 Vantage. Uh, very different car to drive. It's all about corner speed, and it's not that fast in the corners, but it has a lot of the aero tricks from their GTE car. So, so like a faster GT4 style car? Yeah, it runs in the same class as the V12 car, and, it, and the GT8 car is actually the car that won the 24-hour in... Um, uh, SP8 last year, uh, that class, which is for over four liter engines, GT cars over four liter right. engines. And there's, there's it's, like 20 different classes. Yes, of yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so we, it won. And so I got to do two races in that last year. So this year I've signed to do three races with, uh, with Aston Martin. I'm doing uh, VLN two in a couple weeks, and then I'm going to do the 24 hour in May and then they have a six-hour VLN. Uh, I think it's VLN five. And then talking with, we're trying to negotiate out a fourth race with Aston Martin. Um, so that race may not be in. That may be in some top secret vehicle. I'm not at liberty to disclose. Oh well, we can like hold the release for this 
this podcast until that's <laughs> would you just tell me what it is or gt4 vantage <laughs> <laughs> yeah and no secret that aston's developing a new gt4 car sure so to, their gt4 car is a little long in the tooth now and gt4 is definitely gte a, a, car was a little long in the tooth yeah, and, yeah. and the new one looks incredible so is that is is the aston martin test center at the nurburgring i mean are you going to kind of be rubbing shoulders with the factory guys i mean do they do their gte or gt3 development stuff you know, a, there a lot as well? of a lot of that gte uh development is done through aston martin racing which is a separate entity sure um, so they they so do this, use the um the the nurburgring um i'm sure um, and last year, um, Aston Martin Racing ran the GT8 car or the in the 24-hour, and Aston Martin Test Center ran the uh, the V12 car. Um, one of my co-drivers had an off, um, an and oopsie. and there were they pushed it back. They put it on the dollies, pushed it back into the garage, and there were literally twenty Aston Martin Test Center and Aston Martin Racing guys just throwing parts at the car and and you know 10 minutes later you know this is during a vln race this was during the 24 hour during the 24 hour last year yeah and and they're throwing control arms and tie rods and blah blah, 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 and you know 15 minutes later they drop that car down and we're back out in the race so it cost us a you know a lap you know, getting getting shoved into the gravel trail at or gravel gravel at Adenauer Forest and into the guardrail cost us a lap. So yeah, and and they're really, I mean, you know, most people who have seen the Nurburgring or or have any concept of what that place is about, there's no generally no small off at the Nurburgring. Um, no. So that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got into the wall last year with the GT8 car in my last race, and you know, I wasn't keeping up with the adjustments of the ABS and traction control as I should have. Um, got a little too much rotation going into the small carousel and it oversteered. I caught it, but I was, it cost me about two feet laterally on the track and that two feet, I was really relying on being there and it (laughs) popped me up out of the banking in the small carousel. And from there I was just a projectile and I slapped the wall with the, one of only 150 in the world GT8s. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that and that's a Nurburgring specific crash where you're in, like you said, a carousel, a, a banked corner that you know is a. It's what uh, the smaller one is concrete as well, right? Yeah, yeah they're both concrete. Yeah, so, so yeah. both carousels of the Nurburgring, you know, these concrete, highly banked angled corners where you just kind of you throw it in as hard as you can, and then you kind of stick it. Uh, at a you know partial throttle just to just to keep the car really from decelerating rather than trying to to accelerate through the corner, but if you get it wrong, you enter a little too hot or you give it a little too much throttle in the middle and you pop up and off of that banking. I mean, it's like going from going from the banking in you know at Daytona full throttle to all of a sudden being on a flat surface. Exactly. I mean, you're, you're going to yeah. shoot way yeah. to the outside. It, it, it would be and, like Daytona with no guardrail at the top. Right, you know, once you drop those you'd outside, you end tires, up in Orlando. Yeah, yeah, or in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> depending on which corner you're yeah, going into. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, copy that. So, uh, so you're even after that experience, you're going back for more at the Nurburgring. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They, or was, because of that experience, because the you know the, the Aston Martin has it so well put together over there. Yeah. I mean, they. I'm involved with their. They have a customer racing program there. Um, 
and I fortunately through a, a co-driver that I had uh, previously, a guy named uh, Tony Richards, who's from New Zealand, he had been involved with Aston Martin and kind of gave them my resume and my background. And they were like, yeah, sure. Come and come and race in our customer racing program. Um, they don't realize that the first Aston Martin I ever drove was a V12 Aston Martin at the Nürburgring. But, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm never going to have enough money to actually own an Aston Martin. But uh, yeah, it's, it's the, yeah, the beauty of racing at the Nürburgring. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, Can't wait to get back. If you could go back and change one thing or if you could kind of give your 18-year-old self a piece of advice from what you know now. Well, and, and that was... You know, that's the, the, the story is, you know, I don't know if I would go back and change anything. I think I fought every day for what I thought was right. And, and I fought for the, for the program. I fought for the product. I tried to make the best car I could. And I didn't win every time. I mean, there's always trade-offs. I mean, everything's a compromise. And, you know, I fought for it. And, when I look back at my career where I can really see, you know, kind of the, the, where it all went wrong for me years and years and years ago, um, you know, corporate corporations have their own internal politics. And I was a, uh, still an engineer, a co-op student, still a GMI student in, in the Van Nuys plant. And we were working, they were trying to help fuel economy, um, and as a, to help fuel economy, they were trying to sell more V6 Camaros. That was the master plan, was to sell more V6 Camaros. So internally in the plant, and this kind of thing doesn't happen very often, um, we did an in-plant, we called it a prototype, but basically it was a mixing of options on cars to try and come up with a California-only version of the V6 Camaro to try and sell more cars in California. And uh, it was something that was more fuel efficient. That was it, basically it was just for fuel economy. It was fewer VA. It was more V6s versus V8s. Right. They got better fuel so economy. It, so it helps the corporate average. So more, right. More fuel economy over the average of total cars sold yes, under the, the Chevy GM yeah. banner. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so, so there's a lot of that that's going on today with you know, you're seeing manufacturers using turbocharged cars and hybrids and right, it's all going. Right. And, and we were just trying to help with by selling, by changing the, the mix of products sold you know, and try and sell a few more V6 cars. So I got involved as a, you know, just a helper. I was just a GMI student, you know, and um, the the program, we built three cars and they were in, it was, was the RS Coupe um, version. And they were, we had a, a black one that was all monochromatic. So it had black wheels and we had a white one that had white wheels and we had a red one that had red wheels. And it had a lot of the if you remember the IROC Camaro. It, so we oh, had yeah. a lot of the, the, the flares and the wing and the lowered springs of that car, um, but we, were, we were, had V6s. And so GM had a, a place out in Thousand Oaks that was the Advanced Concept Center. I don't even know if it's there anymore. Um, and so we took the three prototypes that we put together in the plant, and I got to drive one of them along as a student and we drove them out there to the Advanced Concept Center because GM's chief engineer, a guy named Don Runkle, uh, he went on to 
I think he was president of, of Delphi and did other things after GM, but um, when GM spun Delphi off, but went out there to have Don Runkle come out and sprinkle a little holy water on the project. And, and I believe I was a, maybe a sophomore in college at the time. So you knew everything. Oh yeah. 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 I was very yeah. smart as a sophomore in college, right. but so we, we got out there and I, I don't remember the guy's name, but Runkle had one of his guys with him. And, you know, I would affectionately call him a yes man, but you know, whatever you want to call him. I don't remember the <laughs> Did gentleman's name. you affectionately name. call that yeah. to his face? Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember. Really, but, going? uh, we, we, we got into a discussion about the vehicle. Uh, about the vehicles and this this runkles uh guy who was carrying runkles briefcase for him or whatever um he didn't like the red wheels on the red car okay Um, that's that's a fair opinion yeah and and i liked the the theme i liked the black wheels on the black car and the white wheels and the white car and the red wheels in the red car and as a sophomore in college, I got into an argument with this guy, and he and I were going back and forth. Um, and the guys I was working with, the gentlemen who were actually in charge of the project, they kind of were sitting there, probably getting a kick out of me arguing. And and Runkle was standing there, and you know, the guy would say things like, "Well, I don't know. I mean, I just don't like the red wheels. They're they're too California." And I looked at him and said, it's supposed to be a California-only car. Look around. Yeah, and and we went back and forth on that for a while. And finally, Runkle got, I think, fed up with it and said, he goes, God damn it. He says, I don't care. Somebody make a decision. And I looked at him and I said, the red wheels stay. And his reply, he looked at me and he said, now we know who to blame. (laughs) And, (laughs) And I kind of thought it was a joke, you know, at the time. Um, but in retrospect, what I took out of that experience was that GM wanted, and I shouldn't just typify GM, a corporations wanted people who could make the hard decision and stand behind it and after 30 years in the industry, I can pretty easily say that that's not what most corporations want. <laughs> they want someone to go along to get along. And that was a fork in the road for me. And I fought for everything for 30 years. And and I wouldn't change a thing. But... That was because what, your your approach had hasn't changed, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because I knew everything as a sophomore in college, right, and, and you, apparently I still do. <laughs> um, you know more now, obviously. Yeah. yeah, no, but I I I think that was the right thing to do for the car. It was the right thing to do for the program. It was always the right thing to do for the product, and I think ultimately it was the right thing to do for the corporation. And I think had GM had a little bit more of that they may have been able to avoid you know uh, some some obvious missteps sure you know? um, if they had so, really so- if they had really had somebody who could have stood up and said oh my god that aztec is ugly <laughs> and you know i was involved with the pontiac aztec when i got to when i went back to gm uh, worked yeah. on, i worked on a sob version of the aztec that never actually saw the light of day but 
there was a memo that came down internally at General Motors that said you will not criticize the appearance of the Aztec. And I can fully agree with that if you're talking to the press. Yeah, you have publicly, to take the corporate sure. line. But internally, telling all your development people whose primary purpose in life is to point out what's wrong. I mean, that's what development people do. They point out what's wrong and hopefully fix it. Um, you're telling them not to do that? Yeah. Yeah, it really kind of cuts didn't, the didn't legs resonate. out of your development organization a little bit. And so, you know, I, I don't know if it would have stopped the bankruptcy. There was a whole lot of financial related stuff to the, you know, the, the pension liability there that no matter what GM did, they probably were going to end up going bankrupt. But um, that was sort of the fork in the road with me, the RS Coupe project. But as it turned out, they were only supposed to build, I think, 4,000 for California. And they ended up building... Uh, fourth, the original four thousand for California. They built another two thousand for Florida, and another two thousand or four thousand on top of that for California that year. And we sold ten thousand RS Coupe Camaros, and within a couple years, the RS Coupe became the base car. Um, when it became the base car, some of the monochromatic stuff went away because we had to offer more than just the three. So colors. the red Camaro with red wheels made it because oh, yeah. you put your fist down and said it stays. Yeah. yeah. Red wheels. Yep. So it didn't it didn't come back to bite you? No, never did. No, I thought that's where that story never was did. going. No, no, no. But I think and that's what, how what, I lost my job at GM. Yeah. No. Now, what what came back to bite me ultimately? I think was the 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 philosophy that they well, wanted the difference people, in philosophy they, that they wanted people who would fight for what they thought was right, and I'm not sure that's what corporations really want sometimes. Final question here: any any bucket list things, career wise or racing wise, that you haven't yet done that are still on the list? Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's. So let's, I, let's, I hate, let's do two answers. Career wise, you know, outside of motorsports, what kind of bucket list project would you like to work on? And then a motorsports bucket list type thing that you have not done yet. And I, you know, I'd say racing the 24 hours of Nurburgring multiple times is pretty cool already. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, career wise, you know, I am really happy with what I'm doing now. I really, and I, you know, I'm, I'm paying the bills. I like what I'm doing. I'm having a good time. My clients like my work. Um, they need me and it's very satisfying. So I don't, you know, I would love to get involved with, you know, race programs, probably in the future, probably get more involved with race teams. Um, I don't know that I ever want to own a race team. I think I, I've owned enough race teams to know that that's a black hole. <laughs> but uh, I, I would love to be involved with uh, race teams and helping, you know. So skewing sh- even more towards the motorsports side. Yeah, doing ne- doing never, some more engineering yeah. in that way, a little bit more away from the, you know, the streetcar work but i mean streetcar work pays the bills um you know in terms of motorsports and uh, you know obviously from the you know the story at the espn the very you first know, it was exposure Le Mans. it was lamont yeah, and it has to be you know i would i would love to drive the 24 hours of lamont i am realistic enough to know that because it's become so corporate now um, and so factory dominated that, you know, I mean, to a privateer seat, I imagine probably would cost you a million dollars. Uh, probably not, not quite as much as you'd think. I've, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as you can imagine, yeah. Le Mans on, on my list yeah. as well. Um, 
but but yeah i mean it, it's it's big big bucks for one race yeah um, yeah i mean because you have to be there for the test and you gotta go over twice and and yeah, it's, yeah. there's and, actually and, wait a minute you should if you don't know about this already i'm surprised there's an um so there's the road to le mans obviously which is the gt3 lmp3 mm-hmm. race that's kind of the same weekend so it's not the 24 but you're driving on the same weekend or yep. you're racing the same weekend on the same track but you know there's also the aston martin kind of festival race so it's like an aston martin only uh support event i'm gonna have to talk yeah. to some people do, at aston do, martin do about some that. googling or some yeah. uh some yeah. sprechensy deutsching yeah 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 we'll, we'll <laughs> to, talk to with figure the, out uh, talk with the test center when i, I get, get over, over there. there yeah that would be fantastic just yeah. uh, any a chance to run a support race on the 24-hour weekend would be fantastic um yeah you know i my my Kiwi uh, co-driver Tony, who's coming back over for the 24-hour again this year with with Aston Martin. Um, this will be our third 24-hour together at the ring, and he's coming back over. And he's you know he's had some conversations with guys about uh, racing at Bathurst, and he's like, yeah. "Hey, would you be interested in coming down?" If and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah <laughs> sign me up." I mean, I'm yeah. going. I'll, I got my passport. I'll be at the airport in ten minutes. You know, <laughs> the, the six hour Bathurst is this weekend, and so that that's kind of you got, obviously have the twelve hour, but there's this other race called uh, the the six hour, and I can't remember the name of it or what it's sponsored by, but it's essentially kind of the the top club level race at Bathurst. And so that that's another one that's obviously on on probably my list and everybody else's list as yeah. well. Yeah. I mean Bathurst, uh Le Mans, and you know, if if none of those ever work out, I don't think that the twenty four hours at the Nürburgring is a poor substitute. Could race I, that track. I think it's the oh, thousand most, times. Yeah. I, it's the most difficult yeah. track in the world. Um and you know it's it's not as abusive as Sebring and it's not as fast as Le Mans, but I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty special. Yeah. Yeah. A couple hundred thousand people on the grid. Yeah. It's a, yeah. it's a great place to be. Yeah. I would agree with that. Well, thank you for, uh, for coming and talking today and, uh, we'll see you on the track. Sounds good. I'm bronze this year. I turned 50 by the way. <laughs> so am I. I don't turn 50, but I'm also bronze. <laughs> <laughs> bronze. Uh, I'm available for him. FIA bronze. We're going to put together, him. we're going to put together a bronze dream team and go like win the bronze cup at Lamar or something or yeah. wherever. Yeah. I saw what, what did they say that GT D was going to maybe require bronzes? I saw some IMSA stuff. That was one of the proposals. There, yeah, to require at least a bronze in the car. Is that as as a way to make changes for next year? Yeah, that was yeah, one of re- the proposed things to because you know I mean GTD it comes out of privateer money and and it's so expensive. I mean yeah. GTD nowadays is you know three million bucks a year and it's it's yeah it's privateer but there's also so much factory subsidization going on right now in in at least in IMSA on the GT3 side because it's you know you're approaching prototype level money i mean if you took a GTD budget to Europe a, 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 an IMSA GTD budget to Europe you could race WBC in prototypes yeah. with with that money i mean it's it's silly um, yeah. so I mean, yeah i mean i you know i don't want this to go out over the podcast but you know i mean yeah, an ST seat is what uh, well, ST kind of doesn't exist anymore. Well, right. it effectively doesn't exist anymore, but, but yeah, it's, uh, it's probably, yeah. Grand a weekend for an ST car. It's, you know, for a TCR car, which actually I think TCR is, 
is the the wave of the future. The cars are pretty cheap uh, in the grand scheme of things. You know, one hundred and thirty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You know, delivered, ready to run. Um, you know, and and when they're not turned down. Uh, they're faster they're, than GT4, they're faster cars. Than GT4 cars, which is the problem. That's why they turn them down. Yeah. And there's so much fun to drive. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're, they're super fun. And, and so I'm, I'm actually hoping to, to put something together at the Nürburgring, um, running some TCR stuff later this year too, because that, you know, the, the budget and it all comes back to budget. I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about all kinds of different reasons for racing places, you know, in Europe and, and, and the differences between, the States and Europe, but it, you know, the conversation, it, it's all revolved around budget. You know, most of our racing the last year or two, I, I know you've been at the Nürburgring a bunch and, and I've, I've been over there a little bit trying to get back there, but you know, for me, my, my effort and my attention and focus gets put there first because it's like, Hey, this is a fraction of the budget yeah, and the cars are just as cool. Same, same cars. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of kind of global regulations. Now TCR car there is mm-hmm. a TCR car here. GT4, yeah. it all I translates. Mean, I mean, you know that it's possible to get a competitive seat at the Nürburgring for the 24 hour for less than an ST seat for one race, for one race, yeah. for, a, for a two hour ST race. And easily all day long i mean it's it, not like yeah. you have to go deal hunting or negotiating no. for, it's like yeah and it's yeah. like yeah it's like why, why would i bang for the buck even if you have to spend 1500 bucks or a thousand bucks on an airplane ticket yeah bang for the buck why would i run here yep you know and uh you know and not to say that I'm not available. I'm available if anyone. <laughs> have helmet will travel yeah absolutely All right. Well, on that note, thanks again. Thank you. Yeah. That was fun.